Thanks for tuning into the Live It podcast. My name is Jason Walton, the host. I'm really excited about the content that we're going to be sharing because it's going to be extremely helpful to entrepreneurs and to other high achievers. As entrepreneurs, we can choose to engage in producing a good or a service that makes the world a better place, enriching the lives of everyone associated with it. Let's not settle for anything less. In addition, I'm gonna regularly challenge each of us to increase our awareness of the needs of people around us, and then to boldly take action. We're gonna make the world a better place, not just through the goods and services we produce, and not just through the jobs we create, but by flooding the world with love and kindness. The information my guests are gonna be sharing on the podcast is gonna be based on our life experiences. It's not meant to be warranted as absolute truth. We don't stand behind the accuracy of the things that we're sharing, sorry. Feel free to fact check and do some homework on your own. It'll go a long way and it'll be a very useful exercise. Thanks for being a part of the Live It community. I hope you embrace and enjoy the journey. Welcome to the Jason Walton Live It podcast. Today, we have a treat for you. So one of my favorite per- people in the world, who also happens to be, by disclaimer, my first cousin, Brandon Mole is joining me today. Brandon is an 18-time best-selling author, best known for uh, the Fablehaven series and the Dragon Watch series. And he's also had three number one uh, books on the New York Times list. Brandon is internationally known. He His books are published, I think, in 30 different languages and he really needs no introduction because he's probably the most famous person that we've had on the on the show so far. But thanks for joining me, cousin. I am happy to be here. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for being here. So you're you're an author. Just to appease the entrepreneurs out here, I'm curious like how you're you're structured because you're obviously not an employee of a of a company. You write books for a living. How many have you written total? Um, I, I mean, I've written twenty novels and then some other books besides that. But yeah. 20 novels is the main source of income. On a really high level basis, how is that structured? Like, like, do you have a company? And yeah. Yeah, yeah there, there's, a, there's a couple of entities. Um, there's one entity for holding the rights. There's another entity I get paid through. As an author, I, I basically work as an independent contractor. I contract with different publishers and um, they pay me a certain amount of money to, to write a certain amount of books. And re- really, those revenue flows, I'm guessing, are they get kind of interesting, right? Because you have you get people are paying you to write books, and then there's probably deals worked out on how those books get promoted, of how, how much those publishers are going to pay. Then you also have uh, movie option contracts and all kinds of other creative ways of of, of how your intellectual pro- property could be licensed, or how you could receive revenue from those things. Yeah, yeah. There's. There's some surprising ways that you sometimes make money, like uh, foreign rights is a big one. You you don't have to rewrite the book into Polish. You know they they just buy the book you already wrote. They have a translator who will translate it into Polish, and basically you've done the work you're going to do. Yeah. And like recently with Fablehaven, I got paid because they took an excerpt to put into a Polish textbook, and and that's that's a very unexpected source of income. But but it, you know. A few thousand dollars from Poland to be in a Polish textbook, and and those little streams can add up, and you're just grateful whenever one of them happens. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, Czechoslovakia might have never done anything for me, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Czech Republic now, I guess. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Czech, too late for Czechoslovakia. So yeah, it sounds like you have two business entities: one that owns the rights, and another one that actually is getting the, the paychecks as you're writing books and doing things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. that's how it's set up. 
Yeah. And so uh, really, you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you work for yourself and and if you don't go do stuff, then just nothing exists, right? Yeah, the only thing that could happen as far as an employer is if I made a contract and then didn't, you know, fulfill the contract, that would be a problem, but... but uh, Are you talking about as as an employee or as, are you saying as an employer? Yeah, I, I'm saying it, I'm saying as, as a guy who's saying, hey, Simon & Schuster, I will write you five books. Yeah. Then I've got somebody who will be mad at me if I don't write five books. But they're not giving you health insurance. No, they're not. Giving yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they're not your employer. That's just a no. They're not. Just a contract between two independent companies. Just a relationship I have to hold up my end of. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, we've talked about this in the past. We will get to it later. But from my perspective, that seems pretty stressful for someone to write you a check yes. for something you haven't written yet. Yes. And having the and having to know that you need to deliver it. Yeah, it's one of the main times in your life that you need to keep a really straight face. As far as like, uh, oh yeah, yeah, I'll, I've got the, I've got a really good plan right here for these five books. Please g- give me seven figures. Yeah, that will keep me up night, wanting to, wondering of how I'm going to deliver on something like that. Yeah, it, it, it really does make me feel stressed sometimes. Sorry, with you. I want to talk about how, um, how it got started. I want to, I'm going to back way up, being your cousin and all. I want to say that you, along with my brother Mike, who's your age, who just recently passed away. I know all three of us are very close. Um, You and Mike have a creative gene that I don't have. And you're both four years younger than I am. And uh, when we were young, it was just an unbelievable thing to watch the two of you escape into fantasy land. I mean, from the time when you were three or four years old, it just seems to me that you and Mike both just had this creative gene. Yeah. Where did that come from? Yeah, you know what? That's a great question. I, I really don't know. I, I I know that ever since I can remember, I like to escape into my head, you know. And 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 I know Mike was similar because we could relate really easily and well about um, fictional universes and, and and escaping into our brains. But like, uh, I, I know that as a little guy, I would be very happy if you just left me alone in a room and I would fight imaginary monsters. And I, and what I just wanted was to be unobserved as I did so. Right. Well, I remember when you were 10, 11, 12, I had a couple of times where I wondered if you would be like an adult that was able to join and function in reality with the rest of human beings. Yeah. And I meant that as a compliment because you were so creative and so good at developing those imaginary worlds and felt so much joy in it. Mm-hmm. And then I remember when you were about 19, 20, 21, I was like, wow, he, he has like bottled it. So he's grown into this mature man. But even when I remember we had you over for dinner one time, I think you were just barely 21 and I could still see all the time. At least I felt like I could still see your wheels were still turning. That's funny. And I think that might've been the time when you were building your creative juices with, with, uh, with a group at, at BYU. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I, I performed with and helped run a comedy troupe called Divine Comedy. And uh, that was one of my best creative outlets. So I learned more doing, doing that than the rest of college. <laughs> That's interesting. Put yeah. you learned more about that for your career. The rest of college, you were also doing a lot of the writing. When you were writing with Divine Comedy, was it just you, the stuff for you, or were you writing for the whole troupe? Yeah, no, I was writing for the whole troupe. I, I would write um, probably in my time there about four or five years. I wrote about a hundred skits, and and w- one of the things that that let me do was learn how to write good dialogue. It was like going to dialogue camp, and you know, there's a guy named Sean in the troupe, and he was really good at playing the dumb guy. You know, he, he could just milk the dumb guy. And so you'd write content knowing that Sean could milk it. And that's uh, 
that's a skill you need as a writer, right? I mean, like you're trying to write in different character voices and I was just getting to practice it weekend, week out with Divine Comedy. Were you ever thinking, hey, maybe I'll go write for Saturday Night Live? Oh yeah. Or someone like that. Oh yeah, no, 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 like it was, it was hard to like, I had always wanted to write novels. You gotta understand this, like, you know, since I got very serious about it probably early in high school where I was like, I really wanna do this. Um, and after doing some comedy for a while, that was like, ooh, I would, I could do this the rest of my life and be very content. You know, it was, it was really fun. It's so great to have a live audience, the instant feedback yeah. to make a group of people laugh. It's a very special kind of rush to me. Um, that writing a book is almost the opposite, where you tell a joke when you write a book, and you're going to wait a year and a half to hear that laugh, <laughs> and it'll be at a book signing, and it'll just be a comment someone tells you. You know. Yeah, your divine comedy stuff was great. Plus, it was fun watching be able to do that with your siblings. Yeah. That was yeah. pretty cool too. Yeah, my brother and sister both were in the troop with me. And yeah. Um, a lot of my favorite people I met in college was through that. So at some point, I remember being a young man and and you were graduating from college. And I think it was my brother Mike who came to me and said, Brandon just says he's gonna he wants to not pursue whatever career that society wants him to pursue. And uh he's gonna be an author. He's gonna write a, a book. You did not get a major in English or or journalism or no, writing novels. I got like a, I got a public relations major, right? Yeah. Which was, you know, PR guy, and and I did that because I thought it was more practical. Than, yeah. But 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 really through doing that, I I created a writing major for myself. I mean, quietly the goal was novels, even as I was doing that, because I took a bunch of classes in the English department, got yeah. an English minor, yeah, and took all the creative writing classes. And then I um, took a bunch of writing for mass audience classes through the comms department and just combining that all together just gave me lots of writing experience. I'm guessing, like you said earlier, though, you, you, you said that divine comedy gave you more knowledge and experience for what you've done as a career than the rest of college. Yes. And that, that seems like it, that this seems like that would ring true. It's also interesting to me how you said that in divine comedy, when you're writing and you're doing skits, you're getting immediate feedback. So it's a little bit easier than writing a book where you say a year and a half later, gosh, that that punchline didn't work so well. Or that didn't, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that didn't yeah. settle so well. Whereas divine comedy, comedy, you have a, an honest audience that's going to let you know immediately. Yeah. And that was good or that was bad or I need to change this about my writing style. Is that true? We, we would do four shows a weekend mm -hmm. and we would be switching up the shows between shows based on the feedback we were getting. Right. We would be changing things up. And yeah, it's a little trickier writing alone in your basement, this big, long novel going, this seems cool to me. I wonder how others will react, you know? But did that feedback that you got from a live audience, how did that actually translate to work that you later did in novels? I mean, at least how you approached it. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. When I started Divine Comedy, it was harder to write a skit already knowing it was funny, already knowing it was going to hit. But like with enough practice, you learned how to write it tight and in such a way that you're going to get the reaction you think you're going to get. Like, like your, your hit rate goes up as you workshop and workshop and practice and just build experience. So I learned how to write tighter. I learned how to write more interesting. And mainly I learned how to write good dialogue, which is very hard to do in a novel. Like, like it doesn't, for some people, they never get over that hump of learning to write good dialogue. And for me, I felt like I left divine comedy with that skill already developed. I'm curious because you say this guy, like Sean, for example, when yeah. you write dialogue for Sean, you can anticipate his delivery or what I call nonverbal communication. So yeah. you're kind of seeing how he's going to add his own body language and then the way his voice sounds. Yeah. And you can see how that's going to land. And you don't get that with a book. 
No. And so it seems right. like it's a little bit harder when you don't have Sean to fill in some of those gaps that you know he's going to fill in. When you're writing what a character's saying or doing, you're going to have to wordsmith it because you don't have Sean to help you out. Yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah, like like with Sean, I didn't even have to know exactly what he would do. By Sean, we mean anybody yeah, that's yeah, in the yeah. troop. Because you're writing dog for anyone. You know how they're going to yeah. fill in the gaps. I know Marin can be dry and yeah. funny, and right? But like, but but like with Sean as our example, I didn't even have to know exactly what he's going to pull out of those lines to make him funny. But I know that he can, and I know that he will. And 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 part of what made Sean Sean was that he would find stuff that I didn't see and, and add to that. And that's the the equivalent for that with a book is I am trusting my reader to because because I've got this story in my brain right, and to me it's what I got in my brain is awesome. It is just awesome. And, and, and what I encode it down to is less than, than what I'm seeing in my mind, right? I, yeah. I'm taking this cool thing I see in my head and I am coding it down into words. And then I'm trusting that some other person, some reader, is going to then decode it into something awesome in their head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I'm kind of trusting them to be Sean. Like, I, like, I'm trusting them to bring something to that text. I'm trusting their mind to be a cool movie projector that'll, that, where that story can come to life. And, and the story that they see in their head the story that that reader sees in their head is going to be different than what I saw in my head. But I'm just trusting that that I encoded it well enough that what they see will be cool too. Yeah. Right? And so so, so my, my the tough thing I got to do, kind of like you said, it's all in the wordsmithing. I got to make that code as good as I can so that I can paint on their mind, right, with, with my words. So... <clears throat> At what point did you decide to go all in and just say, "Yep, I'm throwing everything to the wind. I'm going to be a. I'm going to go write a novel." Yeah. So, as a young guy in college, right, I was like, "Will I ever get married? Like, will everyone ever want me if if I want to be a fantasy author?" Right. And, and that was an actual fear, an actual like, man, I don't know if anyone will ever, you know, like, because what's my pitch? Like, you should marry me because we will starve. <laughs> you know what I mean? And our kids will starve. You know, everyone's going to starve. Right. And because, because. So you had to do the bait and switch. Well, no, that, that was the whole thing. I, I don't know if I had the bait and switch in me. Right. right. You don't. You don't. You're a very straightforward man. But, but, but I finally found, I found somebody who, when I said, she asked me, what do you want to do with your life? I was like, maybe an MBA or something. I don't know. Maybe business stuff, maybe. She's like, you didn't, you don't sound very excited about that. I said, I'm not. And, and she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to write books. And she's like, well, then you should write books. And so I was like, in the back of my mind, I seriously was like, maybe I should marry this person. <laughs> and you're still a businessman. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, one, no one taught her. Yeah. No one taught her that to not follow your dreams or something. And, and so like, like she, she thought that That's was great. possible. And uh, so, so when I graduated school, I, I married this girl, Mary. And we, uh, she, she gave me as a gift. She worked for a year while I wrote a book and, and that was the leap, right? That was the leap of, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to partly PR taught me like my PR major. I learned yeah. I didn't want to do PR is, is the main thing I learned. And so I, I, I took a year and wrote a book instead. So I remember my brother, Mike coming to me and say, Hey, Brandon wrote a book and we called it the hippo book. Yeah. And uh, and he said, my brother Mike is is a pretty smart guy. And my brother Mike does not issue a compliment unless it was earned, and he won't say anything that he doesn't actually believe. Yeah. So when he brought me the book, he said, uh, 
I've got to say, like, this is actually really good. And that's not something like to hear that from my brother, Mike, is an unbelievable compliment. And it made me that made me want to read the book, which I did. And I thought it was amazing. And uh, and then if I remember right, you you we kind of met here in Provo. I don't know if you remember that. And you asked my advice, like, what would you do? How do I market this? Like, how do I go? How do I go do this? And it was was actually at our first office there. I remember where we were. And uh, and I'm like, I don't know. It's right. like maybe go maybe go sit in publishers office offices and just not leave tenaciously for like a week or two. And uh and if I remember right, you can tell the story. You you'd met, I know it was I think it was Shadow Mountain. I don't remember if if it was Sherry Dew or who at Shadow Shadow Mountain, but I think if I remember right, the feedback that you had, and this is what I want you to fill in the story was, hey, we like this, but we're looking for something a little bit more like this. And he went and wrote another one. Yeah. So what help help me out with that. Yeah. Fill in the blanks. Yeah. So, so that first book was called The Other End of the Hippo. Yeah. Was the working title, which isn't what it ended up being called in the end. And, and, and I had sent that out to all the East Coast publishers and just gotten just no, like not, not even a no, just no response, which is the most disheartening thing in the universe. You know, where you're like, did they shred it unopened? You know what I mean? Like, like this thing that I worked on. Right? How, how many of those did, did you, did you, do you think you got no responses on? Oh, like, you know, 12, 15, you know, all, all the main publishers, right? Like, like, like I, I hit all the big publishers that would publish this kind of thing in a cool way. But you could have given up. I'm just saying this for the, all the entrepreneurs out there. Yeah. I'm pausing and just saying like, it's easy to look at you now and the success that you've had, but you were coming from nothing. There was no one in our family that was an author. There was no book writing stuff going on. You just yeah. said, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. You wrote a book, sent it out in the world and the world just ignored you at the beginning. They just ignored you. Oh, totally. And you could have given up like most people do, but, but you didn't. Yeah, I didn't. And and I, I'm not kidding. Even most of the teachers I told I was thinking of this were like, oh, don't do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like almost like with this, like you've got such potential. You yeah. I mean, like don't, don't write books. Yes. And there, there was, there was only one who didn't which was Doug Doug Thayer, who was an English professor. And he was like, well, if you want to write books, go write books, you know? But like, but like most, most of them are like, yeah, I don't do that. And even my parents were pretty worried. Like Brandon, Brandon, you've got, you've got this great mind. You can do great things. Like don't write books more or less. Right. And just, and not because they thought writing books was dumb. They just thought it was so hard to break into. Sure. And they weren't wrong. It is hard to break into. They loved you and they were concerned about you. Yeah. But but the point I'm trying to make is like entrepreneurs do hard things. And one of the traits that entrepreneurs do is they find solutions or break through things where other people don't. Yeah. And you, it's not like everywhere you turn, people say, hey, that's a great idea. How can I help? No, it's it was, the opposite. It was the opposite. I, I was skeptical too. Like when, when, you, yeah. when, when you started, I was like, oof, wow. I think every person who cared about me was worried about me. Yes. And, and like- uh, And you were able to ignore everyone and push forward with your dreams of what you wanted to do. Well, there's a certain kind of math you do in your own head where you're like, okay, if, if my friend wanted to be a director, I'd be worried about him. But what if my friend was Steven Spielberg? Yeah. Right? And like for him, that was a really good call, becoming a director. Yeah. He did some good stuff he wouldn't have been able to do as a shoe salesman or as, as something else, right? Sure. And and uh, nothing against being a shoe salesman. No. Either. You know what I mean? Every job's great. But but for him, it was really good that he ended up being a director. For all of us. Because, yeah, he made the world a cooler place. Yeah. More interesting place. And he and he made a really great living at it. And, and, and so that was my question I had to ask myself. Do I think... Am I, am I a Steven Spielberg? Am I a Tom Cruise? Am I the guy that should be an actor? The guy that should be, you know, the guy that will make it like, and I was like, yeah, I think so. I, I think for, I think for imagination, I was like, I think I, I think I'm that guy. I think I'm the one in a billion, you know? And like, 
and you're the only guy who knows it because others judge us by what we've done. Yeah. And we judge us by what we think we're capable of. And so I had to look at, you know, and, and, and I'd been pretty honest with myself my whole life. I didn't, I didn't try out for the basketball team in right. high school because at, at the very best, I think my ceiling was to come off the bench and help a little. And that would be like if I worked my tail off. Right. But like, uh, but it, acting came easier. Comedy came easier and writing like imagination. I don't care. You can put me in any room with any human being on earth. My imagination is as good or better. That's true. <laughs> there's no question about that. Your it, imagination is good or better. It just is. But you, but there's no way to prove it until you've done a bunch of stuff. And I, yeah. I'm still in the process of proving it. Still people who think they know don't know. Like I'll write, I'll write 20 more books that are better than the, than the last 20 if I live another 20 years. But those of us that even knew you, your parents knew your imagination was as good or better. We knew that about you. I unquestionably knew that. I think everyone that knew you pretty well knew that you had the best imagination of anyone that they knew. I think that that's just a fact. I don't know anyone that knew you that wouldn't agree with that. Even when you were young, like really young, let alone when you were still 16, 17, 18, 19. But you still had teachers and parents, other people still concerned. Yeah. How, where did you cope with the energy? And then what did you do next after those 15 rejections and everybody expressing concern? Yeah. And to make it perfectly clear, there was, I'd failed to publish short stories before that. I'd, I'd failed in a lot of ways, you know, like for a lot of years at, at getting anything to go, novellas and short stories and different things I'd tried here and there at this magazine or that magazine. And then writing that novel and having just no one even like nibble, you know, not even like a show it to us later or again, or like, no, just nothing. Like a couple flat no's and mostly no answer. So Brandon, this is still what's cool about it though, is because in the middle of like, nobody's nibbling, they didn't nibble at your short stories, they didn't nibble at the novels, and you're still able to sit there yeah. and go, I don't know what's wrong with these people because I'm still the one in a billion. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because not, it's not all these other people that are right and maybe I'm the one that's missing it. They're all wrong. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm committed to this and I'm going to do it. Yeah. I, I, it's my passion. I felt sure about it, and I and I felt like everybody would catch up with me eventually, which they have, I, 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 almost. I really did, yeah, yeah. It's in it's in it's in, it's a work in progress always, right? Like you can always. One of the things I like about writing a book is always a better story to tell. There's always a better way to tell it. Yeah. There's no end. There's no limit. Like like you can just keep going and getting better like forever, you know. And and to me, that's part of what drew me in because my mind gets bored really easy. Yeah. It doesn't get bored writing books because it's always a new challenge. So what'd you do? You got all the rejections, then what? Yeah. So, so it was, it, it honestly was like, I'm going to do this till I succeed. I'm just going to do it till I succeed. And, and it was. I think people need to hear that. Yeah. Like, like Because that was your passion and that's what you were going to do. You knew that that was your calling. And it wasn't at the expense. So I'm going to do this life. till I succeed. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't at the expense of life. It wasn't like uh, I'm going to do this till I succeed, and my wife and kids are going to pay the price. Sure, I, I got a normal day job, but I kept doing this on the side while I worked my normal day job. Right, I, I worked five years using that PR background, doing marketing stuff. For, yeah, you know, for different companies and like, uh, and I didn't hate that job. It, it wasn't the worst, you know. It was yeah. okay. It was an okay job. But what I wanted to do was write books, and so I kept writing books on the side. Yeah. And so when I finally got in front of this local publisher called Shadow Mountain, um, you know, after sending all these East Coast places, finally it was it was a publisher here in Utah that sat down and talked to me. It was a guy named Chris Schobinger. Okay. And he uh, he's like, "Look, we like how you write. Like this story that you wrote, it's not a good fit for us. But if you write something else, we're interested." And dude, Jason, that was all I had to hear. 
Because like, after lots of no answers and lots of no's, if someone was interested, like, yeah, what do you want me to do? We want something that's for like the Harry Potter crowd. And I was like, okay, well, I have an idea of a story about a secret wildlife park for magical creatures. Should I write that? And he was like, that sounds like the right kind of thing. And so I took five months, wrote Fable Haven, working nights and weekends um, while I was doing my day job and then sold that to them. Then they hired me as their copywriter. Um, and I worked as the copywriter for the publishing house and got to write the jacket copy for my own book. And then when the set, by the time the second book came out, it was making enough money that I could quit my day job. And that's what I've done ever since for the last 17 years. <laughs> Well, the 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 thing that I remember from my perspective on this that was so interesting is is when they said no to you on the book you've written and said, but we like what you write, but we're looking for something more like this. I remember how exuberant you were yeah. at that because was, at least they're responding to you. But yeah. the the more fascinating part is within five months you came up and wrote the first book of what's become one of the best selling children's fantasy books ever. Yeah, and yeah, that uh, that, Fable Haven. that's what you did in that five month period. You yeah. you brought them back Fable Haven, which is just is just incredible. And then I'm guessing that from right, that's when the book tours started, and you started learning how to promote, and you started learning about what I think you've said in the past is a second hat, other than being an author. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like like it, it's something I learned. Like for a long time, getting that first book published felt like the ultimate finish line. Right? It's like, man, if I can just do that. We can just get that first book published, you know, like, and it, and it was a milestone. That was a milestone. It was important. But like any finish line in life, I learned that when you cross any finish line, it's also a starting line, right? Every finish line is always a starting line to something else. And it was like, yay, you published a book and no one's heard of it or you or no one cares, you know, like, and so, yeah, like I learned I was going to have to put in and, and in hindsight, I have learned. I had to put in about as much time marketing the book and promoting the book as I did writing the book. Wow. In, in a lot of ways, trying to publish a book was sort of like planning your own birthday party. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It would have been nice if someone else had, had thought of it. You know? It would have been nice if someone else had chosen some stuff I liked. And, you know, but, but it was also nice to have a birthday party. And so sometimes I, I, I would, I, I, I still, I sit in signing lines and people, you know, there might be a big long line of people anxious to meet me and, and get their book signed. And in my head, I'm like, thanks for coming to the party I planned. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, 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 like it, it's this feeling of, um, this feeling of, I, I, I did a lot of work to help generate this interest. And, and, and there comes a point, there is a tipping point where, where it goes beyond the work you put in, right? Where word of mouth takes over and different things take over, but I'll, I'll, I'll always feel like, and I still feel like a big part of my job besides writing the book is letting people know they exist. I mean, if I didn't do that, I don't think I could make a living at it. I remember my memory from back in those days was the book was being published and I remember how hard it was to actually, I mean, I tried to get you to come speak at my kids' schools uh, oh, the first yeah. year and they're like, no, go talk to the PTAs. I went to talk to the PTAs like three times. They're like, no. And then you came through, we were in San Diego at the time. You came through San Diego and you were speaking at Barnes and Nobles and other bookstores and anyone that would have you. And sometimes there'd be like my family and four other people there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and you're literally traveling the nation yeah. just telling people about the book. Yeah. Fast forward a few years after working your tail off and I'm at I'm at my kids' elementary school and it was like their their book night and their their the main books that they were pushing were yours. 
And I remember them saying, hey, uh, I heard, he's your cousin. Could you could you have him maybe think about coming here? I'm like, well, you weren't around a few years ago. So <laughs> he's, he's kind of in demand now. And I think he's planning to visit all the people in San Diego that were with him at the beginning. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, you, yeah, you were almost a little petty on my behalf. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe a little bit, <laughs> but like, uh, but yeah, that 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 was true, Jason. I mean, it, it was uh, the first several years. I'd probably traveled five months out of the year. You know what I mean, like five five or six months out of the year. Wow, I was on the road, and then you had to be home sometimes because you had to write the book, right? And and try to be a dad and try to be present, right? But like, uh, yeah, like it was. I mean, I still two or three months out of the year. But but it was but it used to be five or six months out of the year. Like I, I was, I was gone. I was working really hard to just get in front of people, just let them know it existed. I trusted that if some people read it, there would be word of mouth and it would spread. And that trust ended up being well founded. Like that actually happened. Thank goodness. So at some point, I remember all of a sudden I started seeing you on TV, and you're like all over, all over. I remember seeing you on Glenn Beck. I yeah, think maybe right. even CNN. And I mean, I just saw you all over the place. And um. When was the point where you realized, hey, this is going well? Um, it's funny. There was, we did, there was, there was a couple milestones. I mean, my sister Summer helped promote yeah. the book early on, right? Like she- She's awesome. She, I, my publisher was trying to figure out how to do the grassroots side, which was, you know, sending me to schools and sending me to bookstores and that kind of thing. And, and I told him, I talked to Summer first. I said, hey, just hire my sister and she'll just hire her to just run this. And they did and she did. And I remember we were out on book tour in New England or something when we got the call that book two of Fablehaven had hit the New York Times list. And and hitting the New York Times list means you're one of the best-selling books in the country in your category, right? And no one thought we were going to hit the Times list except for me and Summer. Like we were the only two people who had that goal and thought we could reach it. This is an ongoing theme though. We're <laughs> yeah, if the publisher wasn't trying. You, you, you believed in it and then you willed it in reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and with and with some smart planning with my sister, yes. she believed in it too. And she- She definitely did. She, she does she, still. She tried to book it, you know, book our grassroots and figure out grassroots in such a way that, that, we, met, that we might have a shot at creating that kind of buzz. But it was really fun because New York- they generally know what's going to be on that list. And so it, it it makes quite a splash when something they've never heard of just pops onto the list. Like, wait, where'd this come from? Like, you know, there, there's- That's there, what happened with Fable Haven. There's money in publicity machines yeah. behind these titles that, that put them on the list. And um, Fable Haven was coming from a publisher they didn't really know much about. And it was an author they didn't know much about. And the fact that that hit the, the bestseller list surprised everybody. I knew that was a milestone. Um, and then, and then the next big milestone was, was around book five, we did our launch party in Utah and it was so slammed. Like it was, it was overly slammed. It was breaking the fire code slammed and it was about 5,000 people oh. in, in this, in this really big space. And, and I remember going, okay, this is, this is leveling up. Like this, this is getting a lot of its own momentum. Yeah. And that, and that, then that ended up kind of bearing out and it kind of sold into the millions and became something that, that helped me make it, you know, my day job and provide for my family. Last time I went to one of your book events, I wasn't even able to say hi to you. So the line was, <laughs> line was through the auditorium, down the hall, out the building outside. And so. And, and not everything is like that, but, but, but some, sometimes we have some really successful events, which is nice. Yeah. 
So, uh, so you carry on. By the way, one of the fun fun stories with this Fable Haven becomes just an international success. Yeah, and then and then at some point, I think you went back and just said, "Hey, that first book I wrote, The Other End of the Hippo." That was actually a pretty good book. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. did you go polish it up with your newfound knowledge and experience? Did you leave it as it was? No, you'd be surprised. This, this is good to know. Um, and it was a good learning experience for me. Because remember, when, when I first wrote that hippo book, I was truly, purely just writing it for me. Like, like I was the only audience. Well, you know, it's my favorite book that, 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 that I had in mind. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of people where Beyonders is there. It turned into my Beyonders series. I bet right? because of the... The Jason Walker thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I think that Jason needs to like about this book is that the main character is basically named after him. Thank you. Um, and it was because when I was a kid, Jason played baseball, and I remember going to his baseball games. And so, sort of like, I think like as a seventh grader, when I thought about like a cool high school kid, I thought of Jason. Like, like that's what a cool high school kid looks like. It's misguided, but I appreciate it. <laughs> but, but from my point of view, that was just true. Like, yeah. Like this is a cool high school kid. He's this baseball player, and he's just just good looking and popular and nice and like it just seemed like when I was writing a when I was when it came time to write a book about a high school kid, I was like, I'm going to name him Jason. And I didn't quite name him Jason Walton, but I named him Jason Walker. It's close enough. And, and and I did the well. I thought Jason Walton would be a little much. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like. Uh, but but saying and Walker kind of had this feeling of adventure, right? Yeah, this, this guy's gonna he does a lot of walking. In Skywalker, this movie, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, uh, but yeah, yeah. J- Jason was was named after. So you go Jason. back to it and yeah. So I went back to that book, and what I realized was, you know, I I really a lot of the ideas in it fit a Harry Potter crowd audience. A lot of my because my imagination is all over the place. So the, the imagination of the story is pretty weird sometimes. You know, like there's just getting eaten by a hippo into another world is a very offbeat idea, right? I mean, like a hippo being the portal to the other world. And so they said, H, H the character down a little bit and uh, and see how, see how the story feels. And so I, yeah. took, so I took this kid that had been, I guess, 20, and I made him 14. And I gave him a co-main character who hadn't even been in the original book named Rachel. And by doing that, I mean, that entailed a complete rewrite of the whole book. I mean, I, I, like when I say rewrite, I mean, start off with a blank document and rewrote every pretty much every word of the book. I mean, I cut and pasted a few descriptions, you know, but I, I rewrote the whole thing. Um, and just, I still made it something that was totally for me, but also for a certain audience, also for this middle grade audience or this Harry Potter type audience. And uh, having done that, it's still on the older side of my category. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like uh, of all my books, I get the most high fives from dads and adults you know, <laughs> on, on, on the Beyonder series. Um, and, uh, but with that rewrite, it debuted at number one on, on the New York Times list and Simon & Schuster bought it for a lot of money. I know you did the re-rewrite and Simon & Schuster did buy it for a lot of money, but you still, that was the book you were originally sending out that no one was responding to. Yeah. And that was the book that you still took to your publisher at Shadow Mountain that they passed on and said, we're looking for something more like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at some point, now we're it's being reinforced that, hey, I am right. I actually, my, yeah, <laughs> my yeah. stuff's pretty good. That was a cool story too. Yeah, people liked it. Yeah. One, I mean, I'm guessing you got paid as much for the that first Beyonders book as you did for a bu- you know your your first releases when you were a new author. Oh, yeah. I mean, when, when I was a new author, I wasn't even getting an advance for Fable Haven Book One. I mean, it was just all royalties. Yeah. And that ended up working out great because we sold a lot of books. You know, but, sure. But there's also the chance you'll get paid 
zero or the one you're, you know, the royalty for the one your grandpa yeah. bought or whatever, you know. Um, yeah, it, it was, I don't know. That, so one of my questions is I remember, I think I remember this wrong. So I'm just going to ask you to walk me through it. Sure. How did the candy shop wars come into be? Yeah. Okay. So. So, so what I'm talking about is there is there are books that Brandon's written. So a couple of his two New York Times bestselling books are a series called The Candy Shop Wars, which are great books. Yeah, yeah. But Can- they are not they are not part of Dragon Watch Beyonders, and they're not part of Beyond. They're, sorry, they're not part of Dragon Watch Fablehaven, and they're not associated with Beyonders. Beyonders it's, either. It's just it's just a unique journey. Yeah. So I, I was. <laughs> this is this is where it, where it came from, and sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. You know, there, this sounds like the story I remember. There's there's guys like Dumas who, I mean, like we think of some classic books like The Three Musketeers, and um, those 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 were written to to feed himself. Yeah, published weekly in the newspaper. You know what I mean? And he, he was living week week to week, writing the next Three Musketeers chapter, and like so sometimes because a guy's got to eat, he writes The Three Musketeers. Yeah. right? and in this case, I wanted to quit my day job. That had been my goal. Like I want to be a full-time author. I don't want to be writing just nights and weekends. I want nights and weekends with my family and be a full-time author, right? Um, and I, as I was anticipating quitting my day job, the money I was making was good, not great yet on Fablehaven because the first book, I mean, it did better than it should have. Any new author would be happy. I was happy, but it wasn't like security to leave your day job yet. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to write two books this year. I'm going to write Fablehaven 2. Then I'm going to start something new. I'm going to write something else just mainly so I can get another paycheck this year on another book. And also just to prove that I'm not a one hit wonder with Fablehaven. Yeah. Prove I've got something else in me. So people go, oh, okay, we can look for multiple things from this guy. It's not just Fablehaven. It's it's Brandon Mole. He's got a bunch of cool stuff, right? And so, yeah. So, I mean, I, I wrote that as a one-off. I, I, I didn't mean it to become a series. But then there's a huge chunk of my readers where that was their favorite one. You know, you, Candy Shop Wars, <laughs> you're in a normal neighborhood, normal kids. Magical candy can give you powers. Sinister magicians are up to no good, you know. Yeah. Luring kids to, to do them favors in return for magical candy. And like, uh, because there was a bunch of kids that it was their favorite one, it got me thinking about making a sequel. So I wrote a sequel about six years after the first one. And now I'm actually writing the third book. I'm, are you really? I, I'm currently writing the third Candy Shop War book. Right. Probably the final one. Yeah. I don't know how I can say it's the final one with a straight face when it was only supposed to be one. You know, but 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 I think it's just the final smile one. and don't have a straight face yeah. to say, yeah, the final one. I think it's Wink. I think it's the final one <laughs> and we will see, right? But like uh yeah, it's called the Carnival Quest, and I'm having a lot of fun writing it. Candy Shop War was fun because for me, it was nice to get into a whole different story world. Yeah. And and, and Candy Shop War probably has my most relaxed rules of magic, which means I can do all sorts of weird stuff. You know, like, like uh, you know, sometimes we make the rules of magic a little more strict just so that the reader can understand what can and can't happen. But there's a lot of value there for the reader to understand. It's like understanding the laws of gravity yeah, or the yeah. other laws of the universe. They want to understand the laws that the characters are abiding by so they can make sense of the characters' choices. Yes. Um. But in Candy Shop War, those there's still rules to magic, but they were a little looser, and so I, I just got really weird and had a lot of fun with it. And it's always a fun story world to get back in. Right now, I'm getting to design, to design my dream theme park if magic were real, right? <laughs> and, and so to me, that that alone is really really fun. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. So is my memory wrong? But speaking of feeding your family, is it? Do I remember right that you actually before you wrote Candy Shop Wars had an op a, an option contract, even though you hadn't written the books yet? 
Yeah, it got like because Fablehaven got optioned fairly early. Candy Shop War also got optioned really fast. I, I'm not sure. I certainly hadn't written book two. I, I, I think book one had, had just barely come out or hadn't quite come out, and we already had um, movies. To, like it did. It got optioned. I got paid decent option money. They didn't make it, but yeah. For for people that don't know, could you explain what it means to sell a movie option contract? Yeah, in simple terms. Yeah, in simple not, terms, not dollar amounts. Just what it means. Yeah. Like, uh, I read a book. A movie studio wants to turn that book into a movie. Um, the first thing that they will do is called option the rights. And when they option the rights, they are purchasing the option to develop the project. So let's say- Into a movie. Yeah, yeah, to develop it into a movie. And so let's say they rent, they rent the rights to Candy Shop War for 18 months. And so for 18 months, they have they have that project on hold with an option to buy it. Right? That's what the option is, is there's an option to buy. All, the price, all the details are locked in. But during those 18 months, they can they can see, can we really get this project going? Can we get the right actor, the right screenplay, the right director? Can we get all the elements in place where we want to pull the trigger and make this movie? You know, which would it's a fantasy movie, it'd be expensive to make. So but, but they tie down you. So that you can't be talking or negotiating. No one else can make that that property into a movie. During the period of that option. During that 18 months. They have rented the right to be the sole developer mm -hmm. of that project and the right to buy it at any point during that time. But then in the end, if they don't buy it, just like a landlord, I collect my rent and it and, and then the property returns to me. And you can sell it again. And, and I can then go, yeah, I can go rent it again or they option yeah. it again. And so I, there's some of my books, Fablehaven, I've optioned multiple times and um, you know, collected my rent money off that. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it, it's not what I want to happen. I want to see it get made into a really good movie someday. We you know? both know it will. Yeah, I, I think so at some point. Yeah, but like, uh, but but it's a nice. Uh, it, it's still nice to collect the rent if 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 a movie's not going to happen. It's better to get paid for it to not happen. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so so that was my question was what about what option contracts are. So I remember. Um, one night we were at your house and it was during a really tough time in your life. Yeah. And uh, and I know a lot of people, whether they're authors or whether they're, you know, no matter what their career profession is, it's not just always sunshine and roses. No. And this is a time where it was, it was, it was uh, after your, your first marriage ended and it was, it was just hard. I remember you were in a emotionally hard place as as well you should have been yeah. you're still as a father and trying to pick up the pieces but still you had publishers that were expecting words to be delivered yes and uh let me tell me a little bit about how that was like and how could you possibly write books under in that situation yeah it's tricky and I, I i remember so you know i went through a divorce and, and it, it wasn't something that i would have ever planned on it wasn't something that i that i even wanted at the time and it was to me. It was pretty soul crushing, and you know, like like I I, I love my family. I I wanted like the, the thought of having less than normal time with my kids for the rest of their growing up was really a, just a terrible feeling. Like uh like like it kind of felt, and the thought of not being with my wife was a terrible feeling. Like I it felt like I was like I was uh I felt very done, extremely done, and. And I remember I had to have a talk with my publisher where I was like, guys, like if a construction worker broke his back, would you expect him back on the site the next day? And I was like, I was like, my mind is broken right now. And and so it is hard to 
to produce something fun and engaging while my mind is broken. And I remember like, and so, and they were, they were so great. They were really understanding. Everybody gave me some extra time and, and, and I needed it. And at the same time, you still had to, with that extra time, you're delaying your paychecks. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I, I, I had to figure it out. And, 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 and it was interesting that to write well, you have to be alive. And, and, and so I had to get back alive. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And, and for me, for me, what helped me was, I, I, I mean, I, I, I strongly believe in Jesus Christ. And, and I, and I, and for me, I know he's real because he brought me back to life when, when I was dead, like, like very specifically and powerfully. And, 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 and so after that, it was easier to write again, you know, when I, when I wasn't dead. I appreciate you opening up and being willing to share that with people. Cause I think it's helpful for people to know that life's kind of hard for everyone. And the way you, the way you've powerfully put that, I, I know we talked a lot during that time period and I don't, I think that you undersold how hurtful that was to you and how, yeah. how you returned from the dead. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. It, it was, it was, it was really hard. And, and, and anybody in this world will, you live long enough, you'll go through some excruciating hardness that can maim you. Yeah. And, 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 and I, and I, whenever I talk to a friend or whenever I have a chance to bring it up, I, I do say there is a real person called Jesus Christ that if you really turn to him when you're incredibly desperate can do things you can't fix yourself. Yeah. And, 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 and like it, it is the advice I give my kids. It's the advice I would give anyone I cared about because, you know, I think, I think sometimes we use his name casually and we talk about religion casually and, but there is actually something there. Like in case you're ever in a really, really desperate situation, try it, you know, (laughs) Well, thank you. Uh, that's just powerful advice, I think, for for everyone. Yeah. So, I first you found Jesus, not found. First, you were healed. Yeah, by Jesus Christ, and um, that helped bring you back to life. And that's that that happened way before you even met your current wife, Erlynn. Yeah, which was a which was a huge miracle. Yeah, that, that I found somebody um, as wonderful as Erlynn is because. It was, she is, she's not only a brilliant, sensitive, beautiful woman, but she's also a brilliant editor. Yeah. Which which is a very, very fortuitous, like, like oddly fortuitous combo where, I mean, she's really a genius level editor. And so I, I have this enormous asset now as, as I write my books going forward, where I have this person that I love and who, who edits brilliantly. And she brought seven more kids into the mix. Yeah. Which which brought a whole lot of a whole floodgate got opened and, and a bunch of life really enriched things came for into my life. Yeah. yeah. Like the, like like I went from a house that sometimes felt um like I was a ghost haunting my own home. You know, it was just way too empty. Um, to a house that's full of life and that has, you know, almost too many people. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? In a good way. Erlin is brilliant and beautiful. And um I remember being at your house one time and you were telling me it was just the two of us and you were telling me how good she was at, at editing. And I think I kind of blew it off a little bit because I was asking how you're doing, how are things? And you, I think you sensed it. You kind of brought me back to it and said, no, seriously, like this is actually really helpful to me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like she's, I've had a lot of editors. I've now written a lot of books, New York times, bestselling author many times. This is a really good editor. 
who's someone who's significantly helping me in the work that I'm doing. Not only in editing, but I think you said even just creatively thinking, bouncing ideas off of future projects and things to do. She's, Erlin is just brilliant. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's a creative genius and she's at a caliber with the best editors I work with who are some of the best editors in the world. So I remember uh, one time, as you said earlier, I was at your very large house with you one night. And I think we ended up talking till like four in the morning. And we went down to your basement, which may or may not have had some water at the time. <laughs> but there were books everywhere and on all these different languages. And I, I don't remember. Uh, and yeah. you said to me, for some reason, they really liked me. And, and you named a country. Poland. And you're like, for some reason, they really like me in Poland. Yeah. And, and you started talking about that a little bit. I'm like, why? And you're like, I don't know. Maybe it's just how they translate it or the people who write it but is there any i do you have any idea now how well you take off and you're really big in some countries and and not others you know i have to assume that part of it is the translation that the part of it is it's translated well but there's there's also something more than that i think there's something where the idea of a secret wildlife park for magical creatures and the kind of fantasy i write really harmonized with the way polish people think because because they really do like my books are required reading in Poland. Like what? Like, like, like if, are you serious? In school, like in Fablehaven is required reading in, in, in school. Wow. And like that that's not true most places here. I mean, sometimes my books are in Battle of the Books or they get read yeah. in school, but but like required reading, like that hasn't happened here yet, you know? I the Polish is country and government are genius. They're brilliant. They are brilliant. And we're going to look for great things for them in the future. Yeah. And once people start looking at why their country's doing so well politically, we're going to have to look back and say, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's 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 an awesome country. Like, I've been there on book tour a few times now. And, I mean, like, the food's good. The people are cool. They're really warm. Um, it, it's, it's really an amazing country because, I mean, they were destroyed in World War II. Yeah. They were destroyed. It's I horrible, mean, horrible. It, it, like their quiv, like like it was like ninety percent of the country. You know what I mean? Like it would be like if here, like if DC was leveled, if if New York was leveled, yeah, and and unspeakable things were happening. To yeah, you. I it mean, was, it, it was bad. It, 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 it was it was out of control. More than one hung country was causing devastation to them. Yeah, and then they were behind the Iron Curtain for a yep. long time, and these guys emerged like hopeful and bright, and are building a cool country, and like. I, I set part of Dragon Watch Book Five in Poland be, because I just had such good vibes from that place. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, and it was good. It was, it was, it was great. And Poland loved that I set part of it in Poland. Like, like it was, and I needed to set it in Europe, and it was like a no brainer. I, I'm doing Poland. I, I think I thought it was interesting that you said that sometimes when you get on a plane to go do a book tour, that you don't know what's going to happen on the other end when you land. That sometimes you yeah. land, there's no one there. You go show up to a vacant building, and then sometimes there's a screaming mob of crowd. When yeah. you walk off the plane, you don't you don't know. I, I just thought that was so funny to walk off a plane and not know if there's going to be a, a roaring crowd of people or no one. <laughs> yeah, you, you you really don't like one book tour. I've just gotten used to. You just roll with it. Like often, it's like my job is to go connect with people. Yeah, and so I'm not always th looking at the logistics very much. Uh, you know, like I, there's people worrying about that for me sometimes, and so. I just got to show up and be real outgoing and nice. And, and I really sometimes have no idea even where I'm going the next day until I look at the piece of paper, you know? So if there's four people there, that's great because you get to connect more deeply with those four people. Like literally, yeah. why yeah. not? What yeah. are some of the other countries where you've, that, that, that seem to really buy your books? I mean, it was, it was Family Heaven was a bestseller in France. Wow. Um, it, that it, makes sense. The French are awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I was glad. I was happy. And, and it was, 
it's done fairly well in a bunch of different languages, but um, but you know, it's been very, very strong. Was it Malaysia, or Indonesia, too. somewhere that you told me that does pretty well? I don't remember. I I got to go to. I've gotten to go to lots of places. That's one of the lucky things about the job, yeah. is that when I <sighs> probably sells the most in the United States. Oh, it sells it sells it sells the yeah. most in the U.S. It sells the most in the U.S. But 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 the it, it's hard to write a good story in, unless you're living life and experiencing things. Yeah, and I've gotten to go to. Moscow, Russia to promote my books and, and and connect with students there. And I've gotten to go to Jakarta, Indonesia and Singapore mm. and multiple cities in China and, um, you know, and, and Poland, of course, as I've mentioned, as well as all over the United States and stuff. And, and those experiences, I never would have on purpose gone to Indonesia. I don't think it just wasn't even on the map for me. And, and after I went there, I was like, wow, there's this whole world of stuff to discover and explore here. And, and, and you have these experiences in different places and all of that just provides raw material that you can use as you imagine worlds and create fantasy. So please shoot, direct me, very straight answer on this one. Okay. Is uh, we have a, our shared grandparents, the moles. Yeah. Right, because your, your father and my mother, brother and sister. Yeah. And... Uh, Growing up, from my perspective, we were together quite a bit on holidays, Thanksgiving, yeah. Christmas, and you know we'd go to the, the Davises because remember, right? Our grandparents were also good friends even before uh, your mom, which is so weird. Yeah, right? married, married married your dad, so the the, the grandparents are always friends. So I remember Kids we went to Redwoods. We, we went to the Redwoods with your family, yeah. with 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 the extended family on your on your side. Um, so I always felt. Remember, I lived at the Mole's house with the grand, our grandparents' house for a while. And several of the other uh, co- cousins did too. And as a result, when you were to go see grandma and grandpa, like we, we lived there. Yeah. And so so I always felt like our grandparents' house and El Retiro Park and just whole that community, to me, that all always seemed like a magical environment. Yes. And so so I'm curious how, how much of that played into the setting of grandparents' magical sanctuary from, from Fablehaven. Oh, oh. No, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, 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 for sure. Because it was like, Fablehaven, go visit your grandparents. It's a magical backyard, basically, right? Yeah. And like, we, we grew up with grandparents whose backyard was a park. Yeah. G- Grandpa was like the one house, at least that I remember, that didn't have a fence. It, it was the only one. I mean, it, it was yeah. the only one. The only house without a fence. Sorry to tell you now it has a fence, but when we were there, it did not. Yeah, yeah. It does have a fence now. <laughs> yeah. It. But it was awesome because whenever we were there, it didn't have a fence. And so, you'd be, and so, you know, with Mike and others, we'd always be trying to con people like, no, this is my grandpa's park. <laughs> There's no fence. You see. And they'd be like, yeah, right. And then we'd be like, just proudly like, go walk in the back door. Like, you're lying. That's not your house. We're like, oh, yeah. We could walk in this back door. Watch this. As if that were proof we own the park, right? Right. But like, uh, yeah, I mean. It did feel magical though, right? There was totally a funky did. tree that we had pictures in. Yes. After El Nino, it would completely flood and we would boat around on it boats. It turns into like a lake and back there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were a lot of things going on there that for me, it felt, as, as a young kid, it felt magical. And so when I when I read Fablehaven, I'm immediately taken there. Not only because you name some of our family members, some of the characters, and because right. of the things that they eat and do. But I mean, like it always felt like grandma and grandpa's to me. Yeah, no, the, like there's no way 
as a writer to not be influenced by your life. Right? Yeah. And so it, it's always trickling through symbolically, deliberately, accidentally, like in so many ways. And that's just totally there. I remember many times talking to, to Mike about how my that, brother. Yeah. 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 yeah talk, talking to your, your brother, Mike about how magical that place was even, you know, and, and Mike is, you know, you know, this was, you know, is, yeah, he, he's passed on, but is, I like is better. Right. Cause he's still there. He is such a level-headed guy, yeah. You know, such a grounded, level-headed guy in so many ways. But, but he also loves fantasy. He, yes, he does. You know what I mean? It's this almost funny mix that he's so level-headed, and yet he loves to suspend disbelief and get lost in a show and get lost in a comic book. And, yep. And and he loved that park. We would talk so often about how that park was just just was childhood to us. Kind of. How often does it happen where where some of your fans or readers will come to you and say, "Hey"? Kind of like what I just did, except mine's a little more specific because we have shared grandparents. But to come to you and say, I really like how you did this. And then this happened and this happened because it means this. And you hear it and you go, I never actually thought of that, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that, that definitely happens. People will see lessons or parallels in yeah. the books that, that are very meaningful to them. And they will explain it to me and I can see how they got there. Yeah. But often it wasn't deliberate. You know what I mean? Often it's it's something that they brought to the reading. It's something they found in the text. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's one of the cool things is anytime you you tell a story where, you know, basically we're, we're conscientious characters, face tough problems, make hard choices, deal with the consequences. You never know what you might end up representing that other people bring to the story from their experiences yeah but but i can tell you this often there's a lot of things you're like more than you imagined so when you're when you're thinking of how to write a book and now i i know we talked a little bit before we started here it, it becomes more like second nature because you're an expert but when you were first beginning and you're thinking of how to do structure how do i do this actually what what's some advice that you'd give to would-be writers that's specifically about how to write yeah no, a book. It, yeah. At the start, the hardest thing was not knowing how to write a novel. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I've read it. I know what a novel sounds like, but but I'm not sure how to, you know, I've driven down the road. I'm not sure how to build a road. Most of us have never written right? one. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I know I can flip on the light switch, but I'm not sure how to wire it myself. Right. And so how do I make a novel? How do I build a novel from out of nothing? Right. And it was a process. What, what I boiled it down into as I, a lot of trial and failure is just um, interesting characters who have relationships. They deal with trouble, make decisions on how to deal with tr trouble, then deal with those consequences, which leads to more trouble, more decisions, more consequences. So I break it down into just five things. Characters, relationships, trouble, decisions, consequences. Those that, five things. Those Same again. Characters. Relationships, trouble, decisions, consequences. And, and I can make almost any story or explain almost any story in terms of those five elements. I, That's I like great. I like those five elements because they're so basic you can tell any story with them. Yeah. Right. It's not like a it's not like a paint by the numbers, overly specific way to tell a story. It's just the basics you have to have. And so for me, um, the other thing, if you're a young writer trying to get good. Um, the thing you have to learn how to do well is to write a good scene. A scene is the building block of the novel, right? You, uh, any, you pay attention to how your favorite authors build their scenes, and then you practice writing your own scenes, and over time you get better at it. 
I mean, that's that's the guts of it. And if you can write a good scene, if you really can write a good scene and re- repetitively write a good scene, you can write anything. You know? Can you elaborate on that? What does that mean to you to write a good scene? So, so to write a good scene means when, when I'm talking about a scene, I'm talking about you know, a moment in time that we're sharing with the characters, right? And and often like the, the scene will break because you get to the end of a chapter and you might leap to a new moment with a new character. Okay. I would call that the end of a scene. Okay. Sometimes there's a page break in the middle of the scene where we pick up with a in a new point of view yes. or in the in a future moment with the character. But the 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 moments we live through with the characters, I would call that a scene. Um and to write like think about it this way. When you read a scene in a book, if it's a if it's a good scene, you are not aware that you are reading a scene. If it's a good scene, you get lost in it. You start experiencing it. That's how sometimes you look at the clock and it's 2 a.m. and you're like, wait, it's 2 a.m. Right? Like if a book's really good, it'll it'll sometimes pull you away, right? And when that's happening, when you're like in a reader's trance and you're just absorbing it, you are paying no attention to how it was done. You're just experiencing story. And so the thing that I noticed was that sometimes in a book, I would get swept up into a reader's trance and it, where I was just living the story instead of reading it. And when I would find a scene like that, I would go back a second time and then look at how did they do that? How did they make, like somehow through the way this person arranged words, I went into like a trance where I was like living this story. So line by line, how much description, how much dialogue, what kind of details did they choose? How did they make this happen? And I'm not trying to replicate exactly the way that author did it. I'm just trying to tune my ear to what it sounds like when it's happening in a way that works and looking at that through a bunch of different authors. And as you watch how a bunch of different authors build their scenes, and then you practice crafting your own scene, certain things become more natural and more deliberate on a, on telling a scene well. It seems like one of the things that would be challenging that I think you do really, really well is learning how to write without, I forget that fellow's name with Divine Comedy, who was always- Yeah, without Sean, right? Without Sean. So like, since he can't deliver the lines, you have to write it in such a way that all the readers are delivering the lines- yeah, and and as they as they start living it and helping the re- the reader to fill in the blanks, but you're giving enough wordsmithing to help them arrive at the same place and have a field for it. Which is why I know in some of your your book tours I've seen you do, you would say, "Hey, I'm going to show you some pictures of the witch, for example, and tell me yeah. which one you think looks look more like most like the witch." Which I thought was a great audience builder because you already the way you wrote it people already made an image of what the witch looked like and what the witch sounded like. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of the same thing to me. It's like, to, to, so it, it just seems very challenging to build those scenes with nobody talking. Yeah. No, it, it is a challenge. And you have to, I think of writing as verbal impressionism, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, like, like I am trying to use words to create an impression on your mind. And I can overdo it. I can overexplain it. Yeah. And that gets tedious. Yep. And I can underdo it. Pulls you out. Yeah. It pulls you out if it gets tedious. You're like, you're telling me too much. I got it. Like, move it forward. Oh, I'm reading a book now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I'm becoming very aware of these words because you're boring me. Like, like, yeah. like, I'm trying to give just enough that the scene comes to life in their head, uh-huh. just enough that they see the character, just enough that they see the moment. And ideally, once I've given you enough that you see it in your head, then I'm out. And that's, that's done best with just a few concrete details. Because if I give a few really specific concrete details, Stephen King had this example in his book on writing. He said the, the server's sleeves were rolled back over his hairy wrists. And he said, for a lot of people, that's enough. You got the guy. You can kind of see him. Sometimes with just that one detail. Um, you can almost hear him. Yeah. 
and, and like uh, you're looking for just a few little specific things that aren't cliches, a few little specific concrete details that are enough that the reader can then fill in the rest. Yeah. And, and that is art, not science, right? But, but, but you're, you're doing your best with your gut to give them just enough to, to, to use words to paint on their minds and, uh, and to not give them too little. You give them too little... And then they're like, wait, I don't see it. I don't see the action. I don't see what happened. So as you're linking together these scenes and you're building and releasing tension and all those five characteristics that you that you spoke about earlier, how how important is it or how often do you at the end of the process go back and maybe look at the pacing of it? Oh, yeah. Huge. Huge. So Orson Scott Card, he gave me really good advice on 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 getting feedback. Orson Scott Card is the guy that did Andrew. Oh, yeah. Film, right? Sure. Talented man. And he uh, and many other wonderful works, genius, yeah. So many books, yeah. So and I know he's books. been really a big part of you, helping you get going and assisting yeah. you, and a mentor. He gave me some real mentoring, like like that went above and beyond. That was really kind. And one of the things he said he does with his, um, with his beta readers or his test readers is he says, "There's only two things I want to know. I want to know if something was unclear, and I want to know if you got bored." Hmm. Any place you got bored or your attention wandered, please mark that. And any place where you just, something was unclear, you didn't understand why a character did something. That's you, smart. You couldn't see something. You couldn't mark that. He goes, if you tell me those two things, I got the rest. You know? And 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 that's more or less how that's I how Great I advice. Operate. Yeah. It's how I operate. Like, so it's, it's largely, the pacing stuff is largely having other people read it. Right? Like, <laughs> it's largely having other people. Like, I'll do what I can see. I can see up to a certain extent. But then, like, if you have other people read it and three people's attention wandered at the same spot, that's for sure a problem. It's time to get in there. That's something That's something to go tighten up, <laughs> yeah. shorten up. Yeah, you, you said too much. So one time you described yourself as Rumpelstiltskin. Yes. Yeah, maybe you can elaborate on that because I thought, I thought this is beautiful. Yeah, so I, I think Rumpel, Rumpelstiltskin is the perfect metaphor for any artist, um, whether you're a writer or whatever. Mm -hmm. But Which is director, you know, yeah, actor, it, yeah. It's just this idea of... He knew how to spin straw into gold. He could take common materials and create value out of common materials. And as a writer, I, I think in some ways, you're, you're a miracle worker as far as just taking words, the same words everybody else has, and trying to build that into something that people would pay you to read. You know what I mean? Like, like when I'm joking around with my friends, I'm like, try writing a 400-page term paper that someone would pay you to read. <laughs> like, like if you want a challenge, go do that. You know what I mean? And that's, yeah. that's what I do for a living, right? I, I tell I tell a story that to me I'm hoping is interesting enough that someone would say, "Yeah, I'll, I'll give you, you know, I'll give you 17 bucks for that hardcover book, and and I'll thank you for it, right? Like after after I spend eight hours reading what you made up, uh, I'll, I'll thank you for it. And if I can do that, I'm doing my job well. But it's a miracle. It really is spinning straw into gold. You're taking common elements. And creating value where value was not there, except for how you arrange those common elements. Yep, there's things that everybody else could have arranged them. Yeah, yeah. So those words. There's the challenge. Those let's words all, are let's all go put these words together and see who will pay us the most for, or <laughs> or who will enjoy them the most. Yeah. Have to be, you have to make money from it. But I, you know, yeah. And for me, I mean, my main reason I wanted to make money as a writer is so I could write more books. Yeah, you know what I mean. Without letting my family down. You've always said that. That's that's the whole reason. And so like. If I was, if I was, if my main goal was to make money, there are better ways to do it yep. and surer ways to do it than yep. becoming an author. But, but, but I did know I wanted to make enough money as an author that I could write full time because then I could generate more content and generate more books. And, and to me, that's, 
that's a, that's my favorite thing to do, whether I was doing it for free or whether I was getting paid. One of the things that I've always admired about you from knowing you much more behind the scenes than in, in, in front of them, I've, I haven't spent that much time actually at your actual book launches and senior in yeah. public, it's usually in family settings. But it's because of seeing in those settings of of realizing how much you actually love your f- readers, your fans, your collaborators, yeah. uh, just the people who are part of your of your creative community. Like you really appreciate them, and and have like a des- built in desire to to bless their lives, yeah, and to interact from and hear from them, and it's and it's really really genuine. I think it comes through with your with your readers and your fan base. I just want to say from the backside of it, it's continuous and constant it's it's really cool to watch yeah it's here's the thing like i I know that if somebody likes my books that we have a lot in common and your friend (laughs) yeah yeah but here's the thing like in my books is stuff i think is cool stuff i think is interesting stuff i think is scary stuff i think is dumb stuff i think is fun stuff i think is wondrous or marvelous or amazing right and and if someone is enough in sync with me that they think that stuff is cool and scary and stuff. Too. I already know that we've got a lot in common and that yeah. we could be friends. Yeah, probably someone you want to hang out with. Yeah, yeah, almost for sure. And 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 when I, as I go do book signings, as I find some of these people who who really have fun with the books, it's like it's like I've already like pre auditioned friends. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> yeah, we, we've got certain things in common that we all like. You know what I mean? And yeah. we, we have a certain kind of crazy that we all enjoy. And 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 that's already I'm I'm already got enough in common there where, yeah, I, I legitimately like you <laughs> because I, I know we, we share some, some things in common, you know? So one of, one of my big tips that I focus on with entrepreneurs is to yeah. make sure that you're doing something that you're really, really passionate about and committed to, and that you ha- you can answer the question like, why you, why you're good or your service or why your product? And you've already answered that four times today. I just want to, I just want to like, for the people watching and listening that are entrepreneur related that want to be authors, want to just remind them of what you've already said. You can correct me if I'm saying it incorrect, wrong, but yeah. it's that you love fantasy and you believe that the stories in your head and the stories that you want to tell are interesting. And it is the one in a billion and it is going to be the thing. And you're constantly perfecting your craft and it's going to, it's the thing that people should and want to read. Yeah. And you love doing it, love doing it. Yeah. I, I would say this, sometimes people give you the advice Write what you know. And that advice gets a little problematic when you write about dragons. Does that make sense? <laughs> sure. Right? And, and, and and not completely problematic because I kind of know dragons because I like to watch movies with dragons and I like to read about dragons. I've learned about them through fiction. I've learned about them through entertainment. But it's more than that. It's different than that. I, I would say if you want to mend that and fix it, it's write what you love. And, and, and if you write what you love... You will, you will care enough to make it great. You will care enough to make it cool. You'll, you, will, you will bring enough passion and interest for what you're writing about that someone else might feel passionate about it. Yeah. You know, I, I have the hope that my books would be the kind of book that would make a reluctant reader like reading. Mm. And that has played out. It's powerful. I've had a lot of kids come say, hey, your, your was, yours was really? the book. How's that, that made feel? Me a reader. It feels like it, it almost makes me want to cry. Yeah. You know, because like... I think of my favorite books. Here's the thing. I think of like, the, for me, it was, it was Narnia. 
Mm-hmm. Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Yeah. For yeah. me, like the Narnia books that I didn't even like to read before I read the Narnia books. When I read the Narnia books, it turned me into a reader. That changed my life. Just did. And so you feel that when those readers, you can connect with that yeah. and say, wow. So if, say, if I was that for you, I'm like, dude, like you almost can't tell me that. That'll, that'll mess. Yeah. I, just thinking about it messes me up. You yeah. Know? In a beautiful way. In a good way. <laughs> in a really good way. Like, yeah. But but it makes me really happy. There's a couple Grand Slam home runs um, for me. And one is when a family comes up in a, in a line and they're like, hey, we all read it together. We love it. Oh. It like, just destroys me. Oh. So cool. Like we bond over it or whatever. You yeah. Know? Like. Uh, yeah. Did that did that with my daughters, by the way. Yeah. It's, re- it's really cool to me. I'm like, fist bumping you. Yeah. Oh, yes, <laughs> yeah. I, could, I couldn't see it. Yeah. Because. And, and you said a couple other yeah. moments. So one, when a family says that, one, when someone says it got me to read, any others that come to mind? Yeah, the, 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 those are the big ones. I mean, like the, yeah. the worst one, the worst one, the hardest one is when it's a kid who's been hurt or sick and it was their distraction. Oof. You know what I mean? Like like, yeah. like, like we, we, we had this one kid named Chase Autry and he, he got to me through the, like, a, like a Make-A-Wish Foundation kind of thing. Yeah. And he, like, it was like, Oh, dude, like I, just, I shouldn't even get into these topics because it'll destroy me. But like, uh, like, like his wish was to see how Fablehaven ended because he was going to die. Oh, you know, we, we 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 were four books in. Book five wasn't out yet, you know. Oh, and it was like, what do you want? <laughs> yeah, and that's tough. And and you have to get on the phone, and you're like. Keep dry eyes. I got to be like, this isn't about my pain. Yeah. Hearing his, his real pain, you know, this is about like trying to give him a good moment. And it was cool. It was, it was beautiful. Like I was able to, it worked out really, really well because he ended up living longer than they thought. Good. So that he was able to, he came to the launch party. <laughs> we made a big deal about him. He got to actually see the actual book and he'd gotten some spoilers ahead of time. And he, and he, he did pass away not too long after that. But like stuff like that, when you get started, I never thought, yeah, like 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 this book would mean that to somebody. You know, yeah, like, yeah. if that was the only thing the book did, it would have been worth writing. If if it had just been a distraction for that one kid, it would have been worth doing, right? And so, like, you sh- did you share with him the ending? Oh, totally, totally, yeah, 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 yeah totally, yeah. 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 My, my only concern was that when I got on the phone, if I would be able to uh, keep it together, just keep it together. Yeah, yeah that, that was, but I did. I kept, you know, I pumped myself up and made it bright and friendly and light. But like when you create a piece of fiction, you just don't know how far it's going to reach. Yeah. That's one of the beautiful, amazing lessons I've learned in life is you don't know how far that thing's going to go. You don't know what it's going to mean to people or do for people or how many people it might might go to. When I wrote the book alone in a basement, you know, a long time ago, like I didn't think this is going to be required reading in Poland probably. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was just hoping 10 people bought it, you know? If all entrepreneurs had that passion, I know you're speaking of, of, of fiction, but if all entrepreneurs pursued that type of, fa- of passion to say, how is this going to make the world a better place? And how is it going to dramatically impact people for the better? I mean, that's the way to succeed in business as an entrepreneur, to have that passion and then actually deliver that yeah. in the way that you've done in, uh, in fantasy fiction. And in so many other ways, Brandon, you're so active in... You could make a living just as a career speaker as <laughs> you're so good at, at, like you said, connecting with people. I, I, I love, that was a part of the job I didn't know I was signing up for. Yeah. I didn't realize when you signed up to be a writer, you were quietly also signing up to be a speaker. But, yep. 
but you end up speaking at schools and libraries and book conventions and all these different places. Yeah. And it, it's ended up becoming a beautiful component of my life. I love that side of the job actually now. It keeps me from becoming a total hermit, you know? So one of the things I've noticed every time I meet with you and ask you about your work, with the exception of one dark period, <laughs> yeah, 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 you light up. And I mean, light up because you're excited. I remember when you were finishing up the Dragonheart series, I came to your house one time and you, in your head, you just figure out what the ending was going to be and you were ecstatic. You're like, yeah. this is the best ending ever. <laughs> I'm so excited to share it with the world. He says, you said every once in a while you come up with something that you know, this is good. Yeah. And you were yeah. just, you were just beating your chest, but more excited to share it with the world. Yeah. But you said something that shocked me uh, one time and you said, I, this is after you've become an 18 time, you said, I have more stories in my head that I have a lifetime to write. Oh yeah, is yeah, that yeah. is that really true? So true. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I have nowhere near enough time to tell the stories I got. Yeah, so it'll it'll just be a matter of it's amazing trying to vet and share the best ones. You know what I mean? <laughs> that, 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 that's that's yeah, that's that's never been the problem. Like like for some reason my my mind produces like like a, some sort of hypercharged oil well that just. It just gushes ideas. Like, like I've, I've got more than I'll ever be able to write. And so as more come in, do you have to like keep eliminating yep. others off the list? Go, yep. oh, this one's better. These yep. lives are then are gone. It's either this one's better, this one's more sellable, this one's more timely, whatever. Yeah. Like, but I like this one more. Yeah, yeah. Often, often. I mean, you want to write the ones you love the most. Yeah. Right? And so, but yeah, there's, there's, there's an ongoing hierarchy of, oh, I could tell this one, I could tell this one, I could tell this one. That statement when you said that, it connected with me because I thought this is the 10 year old boy that I knew. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So, like living in fantasy and you switching, and there's just so many fantasy worlds to live in, so much yeah. to do, and so little time. Yeah. Um, I just want to thank you for taking so much time. We, we've we been here three times longer than we planned, but yeah, but I've just had a good time. time. <laughs> that's the great thing about having your own podcast. You get a, you can just take as much time as, as people allow to talk to the people you think are interesting. And uh, I think that you're interesting. I kept myself. Uh, better for your books, better for knowing you, but most, most, mostly I love you. And I'm grateful that I'm grateful that you're my cousin and that you're such a good man. You've helped me and continue to help me in hard times. And sure, you know, I, I, I love you. The world loves you for, 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 for the books and for the good messages and for the positivity that you put into it. And, and I love you for all those same reasons. Thanks, Jason. I love you too. Yeah. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah. Now we got to get together soon and have movie night. <laughs> I know that'd be really fun. <laughs> All yeah, right. That'd be great. Great. Thanks, Brandon.